Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. As you go through the Gospels, you see, what is Jesus doing? He's feeding the people. He's teaching them. Of course, he's feeding them physically as well. We know from the, the couple of miracles he performed where he multiplied the loaves and the fish. But the reference here is not to that. The reference here is to the fact that he would come and he would feed the people of God the word of God and that he would gather the lambs with his arms. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study through the books of the Old Testament prophets. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Isaiah chapter 40. Now here's Pastor Brian. Once again, we are making our way through the Bible and we pick up our study in Isaiah and we come to chapter 40. And uh, when you get into the, the 40s of Isaiah, you're just entering into some of the richest, most amazing scripture there is. And as I've mentioned before, these are some of my favorite chapters. And in these chapters, I think of just my own life and how God has spoken to me very personally in so many different ways through these chapters here in the 40s and, and on into the 50s as well. So I'm just looking forward to us going through these chapters. And our pace has been fairly rapid. And so we're probably going to slow down a bit, again, because there's so much richness here. Don't want to miss anything. So we're going to at least make it through chapter 40, but we might even make it a bit further. I also want to mention just really quickly that here on on our midweek study, we've been using the CSB version of the Bible as our teaching Bible. And as we go into chapter 40, I'm switching back to our normal use of the New King James Version. And, and I'm finding myself, as much as I like some of the newer translations, I have, for so many years, I've read the same the same text. It's like my brain is just too old to, you know, fully adapt to the new one. So when I'm quoting scripture by memory, I'm finding that I'm actually getting myself confused because I've got too many different translations in my mind. So, so the New King James is, you know, more familiar and comfortable. So I want to go back to that. So as we come to chapter 40, so chapter 39 and, and really chapters 1 through 39, as we pointed out before, they're in a sense the first half of the book, if you will. And as we come to chapter 40, we enter into a whole nother thing. So chapters 1 through 39, the context is Isaiah's time. And remember, in Isaiah's time, the great threat was Assyria. Although Babylon is mentioned occasionally in a prophetic sense, Babylon is not a power during Isaiah's lifetime. But when we come now to chapter 40, everything shifts. And where chapters 1 through 39 were all prophetic words in the context of that period of time where Isaiah lived. Now, chapter 40, as we begin here, we're, we're now looking at things really prophetically. We're looking at events and encouragement that God is giving to people for 100 years or more later. And so these prophecies here really deal specifically with Israel and Babylon. That's chapter 40 through 
chapter 55. And then after chapter 55 to the end of uh, Isaiah 56 through 66, then you have a little bit of a, of a different situation that I'll explain in a moment. But, but here's something that I think is, is really interesting to think about. The 39th chapter ends with Isaiah prophesying to Hezekiah that one day, not in his lifetime, but one day the Babylonians would come and they would overthrow Jerusalem and they would take the people captive into Babylon. And maybe you remember, if you've been following with us, after Isaiah had recovered from his illness and God had given a great victory over the army of Assyria, Isaiah became a bit prideful. And so when these, uh, this group of uh, representatives from Babylon came, he showed them the glory of the kingdom, but he did it in a prideful sort of a way. And so Isaiah comes in and he gives him this kind of a rebuke, but he also gives him this prophecy. So chapter 39 ends with a prophecy about the future captivity of the people in Babylon. Chapter 40 picks up with the prophetic word to them as they would be in Babylon all those years later. Now, I haven't talked about this up until this point, but I want to mention it now because this is where it comes into play. Perhaps you've heard this, maybe you haven't, but if you read Bible commentaries at all, if you maybe even watch uh, the History Channel or Discovery Channel or something like that, you know, oftentimes they'll do things about the Bible and the Bible authors and so forth. But uh, perhaps you've heard the theory that there was more than one Isaiah. Uh, it's called the Deutero-Isaiah uh, theory. And that's meaning there, there are two Isaiahs. Uh, some have even speculated that there were three Isaiahs. So the first Isaiah wrote uh, chapter 1 through 39. The second Isaiah wrote chapter 40 through 55. And the third Isaiah wrote then the remainder of Isaiah. So these are theories. These are ideas that are discussed uh, among uh, certain academics. And um, the, the truth is, uh, these are really just modern theories that have no basis in anything other than uh, academic speculation. I want to I want to quote from um, Ray Ortland Jr. His fantastic commentary on Isaiah that I'm really really enjoying. Uh, I just want to read to you what he says about this whole uh, multiple Isaiah theory. So he says a two or three Isaiah theory is driven not by proofs but by an unproven assumption that a prophet's range of vision could not be extended into an unknown future by God. If we can't accept a mini miracle like this, the miracle of uh, God being able to give the prophets, you know, uh, the ability to see into the future, if we can't accept that, how can we swallow the mega miracle of God's grace in Christ? I love that. Uh, and th so often... Um, when you're reading Old Testament criticism or things like that, uh, you will often find uh, these kinds of ideas. There wasn't one Isaiah, there were more Isaiahs. Daniel didn't really write Daniel because, of course, nobody could write about the future like that. So the, the problem is these scholars uh, really just don't believe in the supernatural in the sense that God can give somebody uh, the ability to see clearly into the future. 
So they think, oh no, it must have been written later, must have been written by somebody else. So Ray goes on and he says this, it is also worth noting that the text of Isaiah has come down to us through history as a unified whole. In the great Isaiah scroll from Qumran, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can see it on display in Jerusalem, chapter 39 flows into chapter 40 as a seamless unity. A partition book of Isaiah is nowhere to be found in the manuscripts. So the manuscripts themselves uh, don't indicate that there was any more than one Isaiah. It flows, as, as Ray says here, seamlessly together. And then just one final quote from him. He said, what can we say about the unity of this book? Chapters 1 through 39 address Isaiah's own generation with a message primarily of confrontation. Isaiah is confronting the people in his generation. Chapters 40 through 55 address the Jews of the Babylonian exile with a message primarily of consolation. Chapters 56 through 66 seem to be omnitemporal, urging all readers to apply the truths of chapters 1 through 55 to their own times with reviving power. Within that simple framework, nuances abound, but this multifaceted book has one author, Isaiah, the son of Amos, as the Bible itself says. So I agree uh, with Ray, who is actually quite a scholar himself. There's one Isaiah, and John, the apostle, when he wrote his gospel in the 12th chapter of his gospel, when he's talking about the unbelief of the religious leaders of the day, he actually quotes Isaiah and he refers to a passage from Isaiah 53, which would be the second Isaiah if there were two. And then he immediately quotes from Isaiah chapter six. And so, um, and of course for John, he attributes them both to a singular Isaiah. So the Dead Sea Scrolls testify. Isaiah, of course, uh, said that he wrote it and the Apostle John uh, seemed to agree with that. So that's just a, a little bit of an introduction as we move in now to the second part of um, the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. And so we pick up here in verse one, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So um, we're, we're going to see, as, as Ray mentioned there, that the, the message of this section is consolation. And so it begins with this, this cry to comfort Jerusalem. Now, again, remember, in Isaiah's time, Jerusalem was still intact. It was fine. The Assyrian attempt to destroy it failed. And so this is projecting out into the future, out uh, 100 years or so beyond the time that Isaiah is writing. And so it says that um, her warfare has ended and her iniquity is pardoned. But then it says this, she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. So the, the question is double for her sins. Does it mean that she was punished doubly uh, for her sins? Or does it mean that God's going to bless her 
into judgment and punishment, or is it a reference to the blessing that's going to come? And there's a difference of opinion on that. Um, I like to think of it as the blessing of God rather than the judgment of God, but it could be either one. But then we come to verse three, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, remember, those of you that have been with us, we talked about how Isaiah is the prophet of the Messiah. And and we see that right here. And um, anyone who's familiar at all with the gospels, right away, you recognize these words, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Who is that? Well, we know that was John the Baptist. That's the very answer he gave to the question from the religious leaders when they came to him at the Jordan River. They said, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Who, who are you that you're doing this? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So this is a prophecy of John and all of the comfort and everything here will ultimately come through the Messiah. And so that's why we have the reference here to the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. And remember, Lord is Yahweh. So we're talking about the, the God of Israel. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So this is, um, in a sense, it's poetic language. Uh, every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain shall be brought low. So it's, it's a picture of the humble being exalted and the proud being humbled. And so the Lord's coming. He's going to level the playing field, so to speak. The rough places are going to be made smooth and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. And so the glory of the Lord is revealed when Jesus comes. And remember, as John 1.14 tells us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is the, the distant uh, prophecy that, that Isaiah is given about the Lord. So now the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Here's the message. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You know, these Isaiah passages, you find them again in the New Testament. Peter quotes this passage right here. And, but, it, but what a sobering reminder and what a reality, really. All flesh is as grass. And, and all of the glory of man is like the flower of the field. And what happens with the grass? The grass withers. And what happens to the flower? The flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. That's where we want to put our confidence. Uh, we can't put our confidence in people because we just saw people are perishing. Uh, we might be trusting in people that won't be around. And so there's one thing that's going to endure forever, and that is the word of the Lord. So, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift up, lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
So this announcement, behold your God. Now remember the voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, what, he, what is he doing? Prepare the way of the Lord. And now the announcement is behold your God. And so God would come to Jerusalem. God did come to Jerusalem. God will come again to Jerusalem in the future. And once again, let me remind you that prophecy, these prophecies that have to do with the future, many of them have a near and a, and a distant fulfillment. And so here, as we go through these, these chapters, we're going to see, again, the near fulfillment is Babylon, the captivity, the deliverance from that, the restoration, the coming of Christ is then a, a secondary aspect of it. But then the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom, that will be a part of it as well. And so behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Now this term, the arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord is, is also a, a messianic reference and when we get to the 53rd chapter, we're going to see that very clearly because the question is asked, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it goes on, it says, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. So who's being talked about there? Well, the arm of the Lord is revealed and the arm of the Lord grows up as a tender plant. And then as we go on in the 53rd chapter, it, it of course is the, the prophecy of the suffering of Jesus, the Messiah. So when we read here about his arm shall rule for him, it's a way of referring to our savior. But listen to what it says. It says, behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Here's his work. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. What, a, what an amazing and beautiful prophecy of what Jesus would do when he came. And so when we think about uh, how the Lord came and, and what did he do? He fed his flock like a shepherd. And as you go through the gospels, you see what is Jesus doing? He's, he's feeding the people. He's teaching them. Of course, he's feeding them physically as well. We know from the, the couple of miracles he performed where he multiplied the loaves and the fish. But the reference here is not to that. The reference here is to the fact that he would come and he would feed the people of God, the word of God, and that he would gather the lambs with his arms. And here we're talking about that compassion that Jesus showed. You know, it's so interesting when you think of who Jesus really is and you think of his greatness and his glory and, you know, the fact that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And of course, one day everybody's going to know that. But when he comes into the world, it's so ironic that he doesn't come in with a plan to make sure everybody knows that. He's perfectly content for people to not know that in a sense. And he comes and he comes in a very understated way he comes and he doesn't make a big pronouncement about, you know, I'm the king of kings and Lord of Lord here. You need to worship me. He comes as a shepherd. He comes to common people and he takes care of them. He feeds them 
uh, like, a, like a shepherd feeds his flock. He gathers them. He cares. The, the picture there is that he's giving personal attention. He's caring for people. And, and as we go through the gospels, we see that. We see Jesus. There's so many beautiful pictures in the gospel of, of Jesus having personal encounters and conversations with people. And so often those are surrounding him, a blessing or helping or healing them in some way. And so we see that he came and he did that. And then he will gently lead those who are with young. He gathers the lamb in his arms, carries them in his bosom. I want to point that out. The picture here is that he carries them uh, close to his heart. And so, you know, we've seen those pictures of shepherds who are holding a a little lamb. Or you can even think of a, a parent holding a baby. And, you know, bringing that baby close there and holding that baby tight. Oh, what are you saying? Just, oh, I love this child. I'm protecting this child. That's what Jesus does. He carries them at his bosom. And and then he gently leads those who are with young. You know, this is a picture as well. Jesus is the, he's the ultimate shepherd. You know, the word pastor means shepherd. And so Jesus is the pastor and he's the ultimate pastor. And I've often looked at this passage as kind of a model for pastoral ministry. What does a pastor do? Well, the pastor feeds the flock of God. That's the, the first thing a pastor does. And then a pastor also cares for the people of God. So we might look at it like the pastor feeds the flock of God through teaching them the word of God. He cares for the flock of God by praying for them and giving them personal encouragement from the scripture. But then the pastor also, uh, like a shepherd, leads the flock of God. God gives vision and direction to those that he calls to be pastors. And then they're to lead God's people in that way. But no, they lead them gently, leading them gently. Sometimes as pastors, we can be more like cattle herders. You know, we're thinking that we've got to crack a whip over their heads and we've got to get them moving. But that's not the way of the, of the shepherd. Uh, the shepherd is going to gently lead them. So here we have this description of the ministry of Jesus. And uh, like I said, secondarily, a picture of uh, pastoral ministry. But now this is where the prophecy, you know, Isaiah speaking prophetically and talking about the the greatness of God, this is where he really begins to magnify the Lord. And so remember the context, the voice of one cried into the wilderness, behold your God. We're talking about the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who, Who has done this? Well, of course, the answer is obvious, right? He's talking about the Lord. The Lord is the one who's done this. But look at what he says he's done. Who has measured the waters? Think of all the waters. Think of the oceans, the great oceans. Think of the seas. Think of the lakes. Think of the rivers. And what about all of that water? What is it? Well, it's just, it's measured in the hollow of his hand.
latest, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament Theology for Real Life by Dr. Nijay Gupta. Words can change their meaning over time, or they can carry a different meaning depending on the context in which they are used. So what is the meaning today of words in the Bible like faith, grace, hope, or peace? Do these words still have the same meaning today? Do you really understand what they mean in the Bible? These words not only have a rich history of meaning that is found within the whole Bible, but they also have a powerful significance for our lives today. You'll learn what it means to know God, to be changed by His favor, and how to lean into a redeemed future with an expectation of wholeness, goodness, and harmony. This book will bring theology into your life in a very practical way, as Nietzsche helps you to reflect on how each of the 15 words might look like in everyday life. If you're interested in what the New Testament has to say about God, God's people, or God's world, then you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book 15 New Testament Words of Life, a New Testament theology for real life by Dr. Nijay Gupta, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Isaiah. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.